and we are live. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning back in. Today on the phone, we are with the owner of Hearth Restaurant in New York and Terroir Wine Bars, Mr. Paul Greco. How are you, sir? I'm awesome, but we're going to start by correcting you, dude. Not Hearth, no more. Simply ah. Terroir. Oh my God, okay. Thank you for the correction. That was actually the first uh, and last time that I saw you it was at that restaurant. I was there several years ago for a birthday celebration with uh, my own, with a good friend of mine, and you took really, really good care of us. Thank you. We opened Marco Canora, my former partner, and I opened Hearth in 2003. And on January 1st, 2015, we parted ways. So the chef, Marco, kept the chef-driven restaurant Hearth. Uh, and me, the wine guy, took the wine-driven joint, which was, at that time, Terroir Tribeca. So that is my sole operation at this juncture, and I am super stoked about that. Got it. Amazing. Well, I'm glad that I got to, um, to meet you at the former spot while you were still there. Um, so, Paul, before you know, we dive into the core conversation of, of, of the interview today, you know, I'd really love if we could just take a step back quickly and kind of just get a little feel for yourself, how you got into the wine business, um, and into the current restaurants that you have. Uh, it'd be a pleasure. Grew up in Toronto, Canada. I was born into a restaurant family. My grandfather opened arguably Canada's first formal Italian restaurant in 1962. Uh, my father started working with him on the first day and I was literally born there in 1965. My earliest memories were going with my father on Saturdays with my older brother to the restaurant, to set tables, to polish silver, to vacuum floors, to do all of that menial work. And I would have to say that the lesson I learned out of all of that was from my father who said, to be a great manager, you have to seize this mundane crap that we do on a daily basis and own it and love it. And I would still say today that I own it and love it, that mundane crap that no one sees that is necessary to open your restaurant on a daily basis. I cannot say, however, that I long to be in this business uh, as a livelihood. I was literally pulled into the business as a, uh, a teenager when I was asked to leave the University of Toronto for, let's just call it, uh, practicing too much hospitality. Um, and my father did not want me to be a bum on the street, so he said, you are going to work at the restaurant first job as a bartender. And after four months of doing that, he said, that I was gonna to go to Italy for 28 days by my lonesome. And I initially refused because for me, wasn't I certainly wanted to go to fucking Italy, that's unbelievable. But I felt that if I did it, that was it, that I would be locked into working with my family at this restaurant. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did not think it was that. Uh, but I went to Italy. And I got to tell you, I went there a relative ignoramus. And when I returned 28 days later, at least compared to the people who worked at my father's restaurant at that time, um, I was a relative genius. Um, I say that hopefully with a modicum of humility. Uh, and when I talk about genius, I refer to the fact that Restaurants like my family's that was open in the early 60s, that style of dining, the expectation of knowledge of the front of the house was very different than it is now. Uh, hospitality was king, but knowing the product as well as we do now and can go on uh, long diatribes with a guest about a wine, a food, a farmer, 
We didn't have to do that back then. So those individuals who worked at a restaurant were awesome. But I came back all of a sudden infused with knowledge. More importantly, what I found in those 28 days in Italy was that the world of wine encompassed everything that rocks my world. History, culture, civilization, religion, philosophy, sociology, blah, blah, blah. All of this cool stuff that I probably should have figured out how to study at university, but I failed miserably. All of a sudden, it appears in this bottle of grape juice. Um, and so I dived deep into the world of wine. I will, however, correct something right now. While I am recognized as a wine guy, I do not recognize myself first and foremost as a wine individual. I am a restaurateur. I love the restaurant business. I love the hospitality industry. And that is the perch from which I do all of the stuff I do, which of course includes wine. Uh, if anyone has ever worked in a family business, you know they are great and they suck. Well, I reached a point where they really, really sucked working with my, um, my family. And my father and I were like this every day. So my mother said, you got to go. So I came to New York in 91, worked at a bunch of different joints, uh, primarily Remy restaurant with Chris Cannon, who's a legendary figure in this neck of the woods. And then uh, I guess the, the most important place that I landed was in 90, 1995 at Gramercy Tavern. I, uh, the restaurant had just opened. Danny was in that becoming a legend status up until GT. He only had Union Square Cafe which opened in 85. And um, when I went to Gramercy Tavern, it was not to work with Danny Meyer. It was to work with the almighty Stephen Olson, who in the late 80s, 90s, was one of those uber legendary wine guys. And so I went there to work with him and to make a little bit of money. And uh, I was on the floor of the restaurant as a server uh, captain for two and some odd years before they asked me to become a manager. And then I did. And that manager position that I occupied was as the beverage director, service director, and assistant GM. And that team that we had at Gramercy Tavern at that time was insane. Tom Clicchio as the chef, Claudia Fleming as the pastry chef, Nick Matone as the GM. Um, I guess I would, I might include me in that list, but the entire team on the floor, the entire kitchen crew, the cooks, the sous chefs, the chef de cuisines who were there then, who then went on to do all of these other incredible things starting in the early O's is just mind blowing to me. And oh yeah, actually Danny owned the goddamn restaurant. So that opened up a whole nother world to us, but it was insane to be in that atmosphere and to describe it simply, it would be this that our philosophy was we only said yes to a guest. We never said no. And in life, when you always say yes, you end up getting into more trouble than not. But we loved getting into trouble and we had the freedom from Danny to get into as much trouble as we possibly could. And I love that shit. I eventually left in 02 to then open up my first restaurant with Marco Canora uh, called Hearth. And then we did terroir in, uh, Oh, wait, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so that's the, uh, that is the CV as you would have. It. Yeah, that's amazing. It's an amazing background that you have and, and working with such talented individuals. So um, I want to ask you about your style of hospitality a little bit more because I've heard, I heard you in a podcast a long time ago uh, on Guildsome and it was super interesting. And I literally, it's the favorite, it's my favorite interview I've heard on Guildsome over 
the years. I mean, talk, I think can I can I just say that my mother is still screaming at me for what I said on that podcast? She, I don't think I'd had heard that many four-letter words in her life, and I think I kept her in. Uh, she said the rosary probably a hundred times over for me after that podcast went online. But there you have it. Anyway, well, so I'm thought- sure. Yeah, there was definitely a, 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 there was a, um, a unique tone than what you're normally accustomed to on the Guild Psalm podcast. Um, however, the Raphael, let's just call it an excited level of enthusiasm <laughs> yes. that I brought to that conversation. So 100%. I would presume, you know, working in the Danny world, it's been written about in his book, uh, Setting the Table, and many other folks have... Um, tried to institute it in their own joint, this idea of enlightened hospitality. Um, And the way that Danny defined that was that first and foremost, you took care of each other, then you took care of the guests, then you took care of the community, uh, the purveyors and the bottom line with the goal being that if you did one through four well, the bottom line should take care of itself. And then everything else that you do, you know, should be tied back to these ideas. Uh, He spoke about the difference between service and hospitality, uh, and if people do not yet have the book setting the table, well, damn, shame on you, because you must get this book immediately and devour it. It is the only book that you need in this industry to thrive. I took from that time of working at Gramercy Tavern, this idea of enlightened hospitality. And during my time with Marco at Hearth, it began to morph a little bit and then blew up when Terroir opened and it was the transition from enlightened hospitality into confrontational hospitality. Um, that yes, the staff still comes first and everything I do in my day, every day, is to figure out better ways to take care of my team in any way, shape or form. But when it comes to the guests, this is where the confrontational part um, settles and everything about terroir, If you love wine and you know wine, you're going to come to terroir and hopefully you're going to think of it as a sandbox. But if you know very little or zero or enough to make you slightly dangerous, you're going to come into terroir and you might be scared shitless. And that is very purposeful. And everything I've just said over the last 30 seconds has nothing seemingly to do with hospitality. Why would I want to be intimidated? Why would I want to be confrontational? as soon as you cross our threshold. Because as Danny taught us, hospitality is a conversation. Hospitality is the guests telling you your expectations for the experience, their expectations, and it's you telling them, how are you gonna fulfill those expectations? It's a very simple relationship and I love it and I live it. But what I chose to do was to make you uncomfortable, to force you to engage me. So you come in with your expectations up here. As soon as you open the wine list, you're immediately going to be dropped down here, let's say. Because you look at the list, you don't recognize the wines or the producers or the reason. A whole bunch of other shit going on. And then we come to the table and we don't just, I, this is the part I really, really love. That if you tell me your expectations are here, I can easily meet you here and elevate. But that to me is not much of a success. I want more room to fucking work with. So by bringing you down to here, I have all of this area that I need to make up. And that's where the terroir thing happens. And it happens because I want control of your experience. 
It presupposes that each and every one of us who works at Terroir can have those conversations of hospitality. And Raphael, to be a great conversationalist, you need to be a what? Listener. That's it, baby. You need to be a great listener. And listening is a very active thing. And I think in this day and age, and not just today, today, but this decade, the decade of the O's, we don't fucking listen enough. We all think that people should listen to what I have to say. Because God damn it, especially in New York, I've got something to say and you must listen to me. Our idea of enlightened, nay, confrontational hospitality means that first and foremost, I hire active listeners. And every day at Terroir, it is my role to ensure that we are actively listening to our guests. So I can take that gulf of expectation from when they first arrived to how I made them feel when they opened up our wine list and narrow it immediately and then bring them up to an increased level of feeling. Because ultimately, I really don't care how many covers I do in a given night. I don't care what the check average is. I don't care what the net sales are. All I ask of our team and our joint on a daily basis is that when you, the guests leave, do you feel different? And if the answer is yes, then we've done our shit. And hopefully that will lead you, Raphael, to say, damn, I have to get me some more of this shit at Terroir. And I have to then call all my friends and colleagues mm -hmm. that they need to come and experience this thing. So that would be our operational model in a nutshell. So a couple of questions on that. One, you said you hire listeners there. I would ask, how do you hire for that? But more importantly, once you do have that person on your crew, what are some things that you do in your training and ongoing training processes to make sure that they can deliver the experience that you're putting forth because I would seem that, you know, I've, I've, I've dined at terroir a couple times. Um, um, when I've been in New York and, and it's an amazing list, but I can see that if it maybe isn't coming from somebody who's incredibly passionate as yourself or, or, you know, the person directing the program, how do you make sure that is conveyed to the people you're giving the responsibility to AKA your staff to, to, you know, to live out that mission? Well, in terms of the hiring process, it's probably too simple in that, uh, Raphael, if I was to interview you for a position at Terroir, first and foremost, I would not ask you a single question about wine. I'm, I believe, as Danny taught us back in the day, I hire for hospitality, I train for service. And I would presume, Raphael, that you would not dare cross my threshold applying for a job if you did not have a foundational wine knowledge. As long as you got that, rock and roll. So what do we do during our interview? You know what? We have a conversation. And I think in having a conversation with people, you can tell if they're engaged or not. And the number one thing that must happen is that when we are talking, we're looking at each other in the eye. If we're talking and you're not looking at me, it's done. We're over. We may talk for 20 minutes, but that, that goddamn interview ended five minutes ago. So I just want to engage you in conversation. You know what? About anything. I don't give a shit. 
I want to talk, I want to hear about your life, what you want to do when you grow up, all of these different things. And after 30 to 45 minutes of having this conversation, I will know if you are someone who would thrive at terroir, if you would make terroir a better place. Then once you get the nod that you can come in and work with us, well, what happens? Because the program is it's not huge by any stretch. It is, you know, we might have 500 different wines. It might be more wide ranging than most lists. The depth that I write about on the list is stupidly absurd, but that's, you know, that's how I get my kicks every goddamn day. Um, so I would look for passion from you, that you yourself are on this learning track. You want to learn more for your own benefit that every day before you come to terroir, you're going to read and learn and you're going to bring that knowledge to terroir. It is an understanding on my part that you are not going to be fully up to speed in the terroir world for at least four to six months. But what you have is my trust that you are on this journey and you bring your knowledge to every interaction with the guests. As you well know, as we all know from this experience, we may have a great wine program, but every guest is not going to ask us the same questions, blah, blah, blah. Some guests just want, what should I drink tonight? You walk away, you bring the wine, good. Other guests want a 25-minute dissertation on the difference between all of the Grand Cru Vignes mm -hmm. And that range allows every single person to find their entree and thrive. And you know what? If we got a guest in who wants to dive deep into Riesling and that individual who's only been there for two months hasn't gotten there yet call me i'm here all of us have different specialties and interests within the joint and it all comes together to make a better team you know and i'm sorry for this analogy but it's like a stew all of us go into the fucking pot all of us bring different strengths and weaknesses i you could say, well, what happened? Do you hire people who are exactly like you? Fucking God forbid, Raphael. If there was a restaurant full of Paul Grecos, the goddamn place would close after a day. I don't want anyone like me. I got one. That's more than enough. I want one Justine, one Emily Ann, one Tira, one Joseph, one Zoe, one Sarah, one Jake, one Nicole. And all of their strengths and weaknesses come together to make this place the place that it is. And ultimately, how did you make the guest feel? I don't give a shit, Raphael, if you sold the guest a $60 bottle of Crow's Hermitage or a $260 bottle of Chapoutier Hermitage. I really don't care. How did you make the guest feel? That's all that matters with my team. And I really should be more honest about it. There is an expectation on my part that once again, every single person who works at that joint is on a voyage of self-learning, self-discovery, as we do a lot less education in that joint than you might think. Maybe eight times a year I get the team together to taste wine with them. But I'll be damned if they're not going to every trade tasting in New York City on their own. I'll be damned if they're not, listen, we have 90 wines by the glass. If all you did as an employee, uh, as a staff member at Terroir, has tasted those 90 wines and learned deep and dark details about each one of those wines, you would be a fucking rock star in the wine world. So those are my primary concerns. How did you make the guests feel? Did you make them feel better than when they arrived? Success. 
when you talk about the education, do you have, you know, you're saying that you do have certain expectations of them keeping up their own education track. Do you have methods of accountability or do you think the team does that for you? Nope, there are no tests, there are no pop quizzes, none of that shit. I think um, I used to micromanage my team. I used to be a passive aggressive manager. And uh, I've been lucky enough that I've been doing this management gig for over 30 years. Those days are beyond me. I'd rather be in the trust side of this relationship. And I do believe that if you um, cross my threshold to apply for a job, you come in with an idea of the expectations that not just I'm going to have, that the other people on the team are going to have, mm -hmm. and that that pressure is going to cause you to learn what you don't know and continue to learn all the bloody time. I would tell you, and maybe you should get some of my staff members on the phone, that I think terroir might be the easiest joint to work in in America because there is no daily lineup of tests and quizzes and all of that shit, but it's also the hardest place to work in because on a very practical side of this thing, that you as a server at terroir, you must be able to do everything. You're not just the song dude, you are the back server, the food runner, uh, the captain, the mater d, the da 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 da. You must be able to do all of those things. Um, and some people can thrive in that environment, others unfortunately cannot. Right. No, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it speaks for itself what's, what's going on over there. So, man, this is. Well, listen, I will. I I wanna, I'm, you're making me want to jump back into the restaurant right now. I'm missing it so much right now. <laughs> <laughs> listen, I will say. Um, I've been blessed in my career. I've worked with a lot of incredible people and the team of people we have at Terroir is the best I ever had. And the team of people who were there a year ago was the best I ever had. And two years ago and three, every, I am blessed with every single person who has chosen to take this deep dive with me into this world. Um, because as we're learning, especially right now, it is a very tough world that our industry operates in. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit, of course. I mean, thank you for sharing so much about your philosophy and what you've been doing in, in hospitality because um, I've been wanting to have this interview with you for a long time, but obviously now what's happening around us, um, you know, how are, it's good to see you in good health, first of all, and just if you wouldn't mind sharing how you as a restaurateur reacting to everything that's going around you, especially being in New York, it seems like it's the epicenter um, in the United States right now, but uh, how hard you're getting hit. It, it's odd. The city is shut down and to see New York shut down is just not cool or good. New Yorkers, like a lot of us in this country, we want to be out and about doing our shit, exercising our rights as Americans. And now we, we should not be doing that. We should be at home taking care of ourselves. And I think what we see now with our industry is how fragile it is. Mm -hmm. How quickly we went, and I'm speaking as an industry right now, and I'll speak as terroir in a moment, how quickly we went from being told by the governor and the mayor that we had to shut down operations, then to telling our staff, you need to file for unemployment. That was days, days apart, not weeks, not right. months, days. We went from serving guests to holy shit, doors closed, everyone needs, needs to file for unemployment. 
is that really how we want to take care of our people? My expectations are that my staff comes in to work every day armed to take care of these people and I haven't taken care of them myself. And I know we as an industry right now are struggling just to hopefully reopen all of our doors. But I am very much thinking on the other side of this thing. So specifically to terroir, I've continued to make payroll for my team through these weeks so far that we've shut down. And I believe I have at least another week or two of payroll in the operation to continue to pay. And hopefully the CARES uh, stimulus package package that was passed last night will have more dollars coming in our front door that I can maintain that. Um, I dare not speak for everyone else out there and what I just said, I don't want any other restaurateur to be offended by that. Um, as many have said, people, many people in this country live paycheck to paycheck and we know full well that our business lives week to week. The dollars that came in last night 80% of those dollars are going out to pay bills today, rent, on and on. We have to think of a new model for this industry or we will cease to exist. Raphael, if you were a recent graduate or graduated 10 years ago, you've been doing all of these things, but you're excited and interested in this restaurant industry. I don't know why you'd come and work for us right now. I don't know why after hearing the incredible stories over the last two to three weeks of restaurant employees with no paychecks, no health care, no nothing, why you would want to enter an industry like that. So I hope that this incredible crisis will not go to waste. And given this blank slate, that we at least have in New York City and New York State, that we will reinvent how we do this restaurant wheel. That if I can borrow a phrase from Miss Targaryen that I want to, that we should be breaking this fucking wheel and redoing how we do this. So if something ever happens again, because in some ways we went through this in the crash of 09, we went through it in 9-11, we went through it in 99, blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, but none of those things gave us the opportunity that we have now to change everything that we do. I want to, when you come and apply for that job, Raphael, if you ever dare to do that, um, to tell you that you have a living wage, not just tip minimum, you've got a living wage. Mm -hmm. I want to say to you, you've got health insurance, that you have paid time off, that you have paternity and maternity leave, um, on and on. The same things that you get when you apply for most other jobs in many other industries in this country that we don't provide right now. Yeah, it seems very difficult with the with such the, the the slight margins that the restaurant industry carries, right? Like to be able to provide those things without coming into some type of union or. or, or well, listen. It, there was um, Amanda Cohen, who owns Dirt Candy, a restaurant in New York City, had a brilliant op-ed in the New York Times on Thursday that I think everyone should read, which is about this topic. And the simple line or example she gave is, "Are you Raphael, as customer?" willing to pay $8 for a latte at your local coffee shop versus the $5 that you paid three weeks ago, knowing that that barista is having a health insurance plan, is making a living wage, gets paid to blah, blah, all of those things. I don't have an answer for that, but if we as an industry did it all together in one fell swoop, when we all reopened, that's the new level playing field. 
up until now, if you as a restaurant church chose to do that and me next door did none of those things, people are going to look at our menus outside our joints and say, well, that guy's too expensive and that guy's just right. I'm going to go to that one. No, no, no. We as an industry all need to institute these things at the same time. I would liken this to the Godfather movie where they have a meeting of the five families and they all left that with a new mandate about how they were going to operate. This needs to be a meeting of the 500 restaurant families in the United States of America and the thousands of independent operators and we all are going to do this differently or our industry that we love so much may not survive. And you know what? And as I say that, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe, you know, is it a good thing that so many of us may not be able to reopen our doors that if we, you know, limit the number of restaurants that maybe I'm going to thrive a little? No fucking way, dude. I want the same number of restaurants. I want the same number of restaurants that are all thriving at the same time because we all support each other as we all do right now. Yeah, it's going to, um, you know, people are saying that they're a little bit hesitant on when things start opening up again, if it's going to be the same level of consumer behavior that we've seen in the past versus people might be a little bit tentative to go out and it might even change the way that consumers go out to dine um, as a whole. Yeah, I think this, uh, those restaurants that are engaged in the takeout, the pickup, the delivery, all of that, um, I'm reticent about that because you're still putting your staff at risk. I do fully believe, at least in New York, we all need to be home. None of us should be out and about if we're truly going to get a handle on this uh, virus. Maybe that's not the same case in other parts of the country. And if it's not, well, then you are lucky. But um, And when we do reopen, I have a feeling that we might still be at 50% capacity, mm-hmm. as dictated by the mayor and the government, the governor, forgive me, for the foreseeable future. And at 50% revenue, most of us can't succeed. Um, the government is helping with the stimulus package that went in play last night. Uh, I haven't investigated yet, but I hope that that can contribute enough dollars so that I can continue to pay all of my staff members. Um, it is, I, in my entire career, I've never imagined or experienced anything like we are in right now. But I'm looking at the positive side of that. It's time for a change. Let's change this thing. You know, talking about that, Paul, what other positives have you seen come out of this thing? Because I know we're talking a lot about, you know, some of the, the, the weaknesses of our industry and how that's affecting us. But there's also been so much positivity that's come through and that I've seen. And even here locally in San Diego, a lot of great restaurateurs have stepped up to, to provide for not just their staff, but others in the hospitality industry. What are you seeing out there in New York? Uh, uh, I'm not seeing anything because I'm locked in my goddamn apartment. I think if, if you are not following what Jose Andres is doing oh, to World Central Kitchen, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, people, that he is a shining light yep. and World Central Kitchen is a beacon, a model for what we all should be doing, not just nationally or internationally, but most definitely locally. So there's things like that happening, which is incredible. Um, I'm not engaged in that. I'm not asking my staff to engage in that because truly I want them at home and not at risk right now of contracting this um, uh, virus. I read today about a group of restaurants in uh, New Orleans that are coming together and they're producing food to be distributed to the first responders. I think things like that 
are awesome. But uh, we're, th this is an insane time that we want to be out and about taking care of people. And you shouldn't be. You need to be home, for God's sake. So I think the good things are more and more conversations like this, that we take this downtime, that hopefully we can put, still have a roof over our head and food on our table for our families and friends during this time. And we are taking those down moments to think about how we change this thing. What is the wheel that we are breaking and what's it going to look like on the other side of this thing? Yeah, no, I agree. And you know what? It's really incredible to hear your message after so many years. It really hasn't changed one bit. You know, it's really inspiring. It's really kind of, I'm really grateful for this podcast because I'm really pumped to get back into the restaurant when we do open and just continue to, to embrace the small nitty gritty things, right? That sometimes, you know, aren't the, the funnest part of the industry, but it's what makes you have a really solid base to continue to do what we do. So, um, this has been an incredible podcast. We've been completely over the time that I told you we were going to do. So thank you for taking it. Um, any party words that you'd like to leave us? Um, yeah. And I hope you will forgive me for using another Game of Thrones reference. Uh, but the final season, eight, that was widely disparaged, I still loved it. And on the final episode, when Tyrion is made the hand of the new king, brand the broken. What is the first thing he does when he walks into the chamber for their meeting of all of the important folks? He straightens the fucking chairs out before anyone walked in to make sure the room was set perfectly. It is the mundane shit that I love. It will be in my bones to the day I pass this mortal coil. And it makes me still love this industry and revere the people that I get to work with on a daily basis. So to all of the restaurant people out there, just please keep on doing the shit that you are doing. I'm honored that I be, I'm able to call myself a compatriot, a peer of all of yours, and take this time to think how we can be better towards each other, not just our guests, towards each other, period. Cheers. Best way to end it. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time. Please keep in touch. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Raphael, my pleasure. Talk to you soon. You got it.